You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers. The 308, the 270, the 28 Nosler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 out 6 and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit savagearms.com. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we have another exciting episode. Imagine this. Your job is to work on a property, manage the habitat, keep records of all the deer that are harvested, and you yourself get to hunt it as well. It's almost like you are a full-time property manager, which he is. Today's guest is Patrick Bonner, and he works for the Indiana National Guard as a wildlife biologist. I did not know that that position or title even existed, and Patrick today breaks down his roles within the National Guard, what he does. He works on a military base, and so it's kind of like He's in charge of public land, but not everybody has the ability to hunt it if you're military. And he goes into all the, all the details about this, so I won't go into the details here. But the way he describes this job sounds really fun. And I think a lot of you would agree, especially if you're a cubicle guy or you're on a, you know, you're doing a job that's kind of routine and, uh, like me, when I was in uh, living that cubicle life, there was days where I wished I was a garbage man because it sucked so bad. So this job that Patrick does sounds really fun, and I think you guys will definitely uh, hear that in his voice, talk about all the data that he collects of all the deer that are harvested, measures the spreads, and uh, puts a report together and works on these new projects and all this cool stuff on an active military base where part of the base still has an artillery range and they bomb parts of the woods so that's interesting as well so i won't go into too Uh, too much more detail about this episode if you haven't subscribed to the nine finger chronicles podcast please do that Uh, go to itunes or wherever you download your podcast and hit the subscribe button dude we put out a ton of great episodes and i may come off as a little biased but i talk to some really awesome people 
who are passionate about the outdoors. Uh, you know, the average Joes of the world to a wildlife biologist like uh, Patrick here. And uh, I mean, I have fun doing this podcast. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you hear that in my voice. Uh, what do we got for a commercial today? Let's see here. We have the average conservationist. Now, this is an apparel company, but it's a little bit more than an apparel company. And I'll talk on the apparel first because one of my favorite hats is the camo. Let's see here. It's the fixed camo hat and then the logo hat, the unstructured logo hat. Uh, two awesome badass hats. And on top of that, they have a ton of cool logo tees. They have hooded sweatshirts. They have a whole bunch of... Uh, really cool apparel now this is where it gets cool not only do they have some really cool apparel but he automatically right off the top gives 10 percent for conservation and the owner of this company marcus ewing is also the host of the average conservationist podcast which is kind of in conjunction with two percent for conservation and the sportsman's nation is two percent for conservation certified so there's a, a big tie-in there and i strongly suggest checking their website out the average conservation let me start over because i have a mouthful the average conservationist Com. Check out their hats, check out their logos, and just or logo tees, hoodies, all their apparel. And just know that if you purchase one of these uh, pieces of apparel or a hat, you're in a way giving back to conservation. And they're giving 10% of all their revenue back to conservation, which is awesome. I wish more more companies within the industry would do that so awesome uh company and awesome podcast today hope you guys enjoy it like i said please subscribe please follow along on instagram and facebook not only the nine finger chronicles but the sportsman's nation as well i'm done talking let's get into today's episode three two one all right on the phone with me today mr patrick bonner patrick how we doing man Good. How are you, Dan? I can't complain. Now, I'm going to ask you two questions, and all I want is a yes or a no. All right? Are you a all bow? Right. Are you a bow hunter? Yes. Are you getting jacked up for this upcoming season? Oh, I can't wait! And <laughs> I I cannot believe how fast this summer went by. Dude, I mean it. It really feels like a couple weeks ago I was locked up in my house teleworking. And uh, now, I mean, we're almost just a little over a month away. When is opener for Indiana? October 1. October 1st, okay. Oh, I, you know, this summer has gone by so fast that I am, I'm straight up behind on everything. Like, I'm straight up behind on getting my bow tuned. I'm straight up behind on, you know, which is good for me because... Uh, of all the years, I'm not going on an elk hunt this year, so I, I have an entire month to get you know it all figured out, and I'll I'll get it done. But I'm behind on my gear, I'm behind on my work, I'm behind on just about every part of my life, man. Uh, this this 2020, as far as I'm concerned, uh, can just go away. Yeah, I I would definitely uh, I'd second that. I mean, I lost far like work-wise like I lost my our, our spring field season and I got behind on field work and it like all the protocols and stuff just bogged the entire office down um 
as far as like getting stuff purchased. And I mean, it was just, it's been crazy. And, uh, I'm, I've shot my bow, I think three times. Um, and like, it was like, I don't know, it was like first, like first of July, I was like, all right, once, twice a week after work, I'm going to go shoot. And then it just, it's only happened three times. I just, I don't know where my time's gone and I don't know where this, where the summer's gone. Yeah. I, I feel you, man. So let's get into, uh, into it. Why don't you tell everybody, obviously we just talked that you live in Indiana, but what do you do for a living? So I am uh, the wildlife biologist for the environmental branch of the Indiana Army National Guard. Um, that's kind of my official uh, title, but really at the end of the day, I, I am the, wild, uh, the wildlife biologist. Okay, so you are a wildlife biologist for the Indiana National Guard. Correct. Okay, which is crazy because... I didn't think that the army would have or have a need for a wildlife biologist. You know what I mean? Like when I think of the army, I think of guns and soldiers and, you know, rockets and like those kind of things. But I don't, I I didn't think of like the, the natural side of it. So tell me a little bit about that role what what a wildlife biologist for the Army National Guard does and why it's important for the Army National Guard to have a wildlife biologist. So uh, the military obviously is part of the federal government um, and DOD owned land. DOD land is owned by the federal government. And when property or land is owned by the federal government, you must follow NEPA regulations. Uh, Endangered Species Act, Section 7, Section 10, um, all those processes that normally you go through when a road needs to get built or a bridge needs to get done or some, a building's going up in a city, all those environmental processes also translate over um, to the Department of Defense as a whole. And then obviously the National Guard is a part of the Department of Defense. So I'm put in place to help to facilitate the permitting process um, and endangered species, which on Camp Atterbury, which is uh, the main training facility for the Indiana Army National Guard, we have the endangered Indiana bat and threatened northern long-eared bat on the T&E list. So, and that that's the, the wildlife realm that, that I uh, contribute to. Um, and then we also, our office is staffed with personnel that handle all the rest of NEPA, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, uh, Historic Preservation Act. Um, that's only a part. I mean, that, that's the real reason why the environmental branch exists um, in every sing, at every single base um, or group of bases. In conjunction with that or w- along with that, uh, we also do our best for wildlife management, habitat management. Um, right now, we're in the process of trying to restore native prairie back to where we can at the base. Um, Northern Indiana uh, historically had prairie, warm season grass prairie. Um, and our northern third of the installation falls under that uh, kind of northern uh, glacial plain. It's actually quite interesting. Um, kind of that glacier stopped a third of the way heading south at the base and so the northern third of the base 
is uh, quite fertile soil, extremely flat, um, kind of bottomlandy, and then the, two, uh, the southern two thirds is just uh, you know hill valley, hill valley, hill valley, hill valley. It's, cool. it's quite interesting, at least from from uh, the my nerding perspective, yeah. uh, kind of how that stopped. And we, we have two different um, kind of ecosystems going on there. Okay. So are you s- strictly on base? I, I mean, do you work only on the land that's uh, encompassed by the base? Or do you work outside of that on other federal, federal grounds? So I'm, I'm responsible for all Indiana uh, – Army National Guard grounds, which really um, Camp Atterbury is the main training facility. Um, we have two training facilities and a bunch of armories. And so we are responsible for the training facilities and the armories. Um, armories, I'm actually, I believe they are owned by the state, but don't hold my feet to the fire on that one. I do know Camp Atterbury, where my office is, is federally owned land that the state leases from the federal government, which is a big reason why all the NEPA and the Endangered Species Act is why we're we're needed there. Okay, so what kind of activities uh, do you do? I mean, it sounds like you're doing uh, vegetation restoration. Obviously, these bats that you you know that you're trying to protect there. But walk us through like a month or how projects get divvied out or an entire year of what your overall tasks are as a wildlife biologist. All right. Um, so I finished up my first year there in July. So I've only really been there for one calendar year. So I can walk you through, uh, what I've done. Um, what I, when I came on, uh, I started immediately got into the habitat management side and we went right into, um, uh, native prairie restoration work. Um, and that's kind of kind of how it goes um, in in the summer, uh, and then as we move into the fall and native and there's also um, on a, and there's other staff there. So we have a forester, so we have timber sales that'll kick off in, throughout the winter um, because you cannot harvest a tree from April one to October one due to bat roosting. So we have timber sales uh, that go on throughout the winter we have tsi work timber stand improvement work sometimes it's done in-house sometimes it's contracted out um and that depends you know if you're going to fell a tree that's larger than five inches that'll have to wait till the winter but some of the invasive species work such as like honeysuckle and autumn olive um that'll get done during the summer uh usually with a fecon flail or with a flip fit excuse me flail head on a skid steer um, and then we move into the fall, and it's deer. So there's been deer hunting at Camp Atterbury for, I believe it started in 86. So we're going into year 35, 34. Yep. Um, and so my job really is to run most of the administrative processes along with, or the biological processes along with deer hunting. Um, and part of that coming up starting next week, we kick off our spotlight surveys, which um, – is my job to coordinate and run and with volunteers throughout the office uh, we come together and we have four survey routes that go throughout the installation and we survey them three times uh, once a week or once a week for for three separate weeks and then do a visibility index after that to 
and that that's when you go and you, you take a, with a rangefinder and you shoot your distance on either side that you could see prospected to see a deer and that's how you calculate your area to get your density based on how many deer you've seen it, okay. it comes along as a deer density index rating it's not super accurate for obvious reasons but it, uh, we're using it as trend analysis okay uh, how many dude, acres it, 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 is this base that you that you work with 35,000 30, so the entire base is 35,000 acres Correct. About 32 and a half are contiguous. And then we have 2000 acre sections that are. All right. So like the, that are separated by just like a, a normal two lane road. It's not a state highway, but it's just like just a normal two lane road. Um, there, there's 2000 and they're also not conjoining. But so there's there's about tw- about 2000 acres that sit um that are just split by this two lane road and the other 30, 30, 32, five or 33,000 acres is all continuous. Now, is there a big fence around all of these lands? No, no, it is not completely fenced. Okay. All no. right. Yeah. Th- that's crazy. Um, well, let me, before I get into that, let me ask you this. So you go through the administrative duties of calculating, uh, you know, doing that research, the spotlight surveys, the, you know, the, the deer density survey, and then does that determine how many tags you make available for people to hunt? Or is this considered state ground where anybody can come in at any time? Uh, so you must have some sort of affiliation to um, the National Guard. Uh, active duty, uh, just a Guard member, uh, you know, active military, uh, reserve military, or like kinda, uh, you work there. Or you know somebody important. Right. That's how you get on the exception of policy list. So if just because I know you, you couldn't get me on on there? I could bring you on as a guest, but you would have to be there like under my supervision I got and you. you wouldn't be able you wouldn't be allowed to access it whenever you would like. I gotcha. Okay. All right. And it comes out to I think last year and we we didn't do like a roll call, which is something I'm I've want to sort of implement um it's just kind of like a list but i believe it's somewhere between like 225 and 250 hunters we had hunting last year through archery which those are our most uh those those are the most consistent hunters okay all right so then the rest of the ground so you have to have some kind of permission or some kind of um you got to know somebody to get on there or you have to be active military or whatever. But then do you guys allocate your own tags or does the rest of it go through the, the state of Indiana, like the, the DNR? The the rest of it goes through the state of Indiana as far, far as tag purchasing. We don't have, we don't hand out tags. However, we have a four deer harvest limit that we sell inputted um because really you can buy what's called in indiana military refuge military slash refuge tag because also the naval base crane naval base also operates in indiana um somewhere south of bloomington and they allow hunting as well 
So you can buy these military slash refuge tags and the you can buy as many as you'd like from the DNR. Okay. But we cap we cap our harvest at four deer. Okay. Um yeah, we cap our harvest at four deer. Okay. So in a way it's it's like public land, correct? Correct. And this and it's uh also been we also have uh gun hunts, firearm hunts, controlled firearm hunts. Most of the season is archery. Um However, we do have a couple of controlled firearm hunts that we set up through a draw system with the DNR and the general public can apply to the DNR and go through the draw process. And if they get drawn, then they are allowed to come and hunt on Camp Atterbury on the specific, uh, on these days where you have the controlled hunt. The big one is uh, the Saturday, Sunday after Thanksgiving. Okay. So, um, Aside from the whitetails, you know, and I'm going to get back to that in a little bit, but aside from the whitetails, do you guys do any surveys for any other animals like uh, turkeys or uh, pheasants or birds or anything like that? Unfortunately not. Um, Pretty much the wildlife uh, personnel at the office is myself and my immediate supervisor. We handle all things wildlife. And we handle all the uh, the deer. So like, I mean, we have a seasonal employee that will sit in the check station because um, we check, you know, we we collect data on every deer that's harvested. But other than that, that's pretty much the extent of the wildlife. So unfortunately, deer is really the main thing that we can go after with some of our surveys, which um, we actually just got our cameras in uh, this past week. Uh, bought a fleet of trail cameras to sort of get another sex ratio indicator. Um, We're going to run a little camera survey uh, throughout the installation um, to kind of get a uh, better accurate, that's the same thing, get a more accurate (laughs) sex ratio. Yeah, I I know what you're saying. Sex ratio estimate. Gotcha. So have you checked those cameras yet? Uh, so when you, and this also, it's going to coincide with sort of a recruitment estimate because when you do your sex ratio, you have your buck dope on, um, waiting till September. That is kind of the standardized, uh, time frame to look at your fawn recruitment. Just think if you have late born fawns, you give them a little bit more of an opportunity to make it, you know, but that once, cause you can't do in October once deer hunting starts. Cause then, you know, once you heart, once the deer is harvested, it becomes, scientifically inaccurate so wait till september um so i'm getting ready to put them out gotcha now let me ask you this um where i used to grow up to the east there was an ammunitions plant where it was at one time it made ammunition during i think all the way up through world war ii vietnam korea um and I don't, and then I think after that, it kind of got closed down. It was this, this military installment where they made ammunition for the military, right? A whole bunch of different, I mean, they made big ammunition. They made little bullets, everything. And there was a fence around that entire, uh, that entire facility just because of what it is that they, they made there. It's fair. It was fairly 
secretive, right? The people who worked there had to have specific clearance and whatnot, but it had, it was a couple thousand acres, uh, I think. And I'm not a hundred percent sure how, um, like the exact acreage, but if you were an, if you were, uh, an Iowan non-residents, I don't think could do it at the time, but there was, there was farming. They would let some farmers in there to farm the ground, uh, and they would also let deer hunters in there to hunt. And I think it was archery only, but it was a very coveted tag because it was limited on what you could shoot, and there were some magnums in there, like some absolute giants. So every year, if you drew that tag, you would get a hunt, and you would see, you know, and I, I'd never done it, but you, you hear the stories of what's getting taken off this base. And my, my question to you is because this is controlled and because of the, not just anybody can go in and hunt it. How is the, the deer quality on this, on this base, on this property? So, um, for me, I live in Indiana now. But I grew up in southeastern New York, where if you shot a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, you had a good season. So my perspective isn't nearly the same as someone, say, from like Iowa or Illinois. But I would say that the deer are very high, high quality. Um, that's coming from me. I mean, from what I would consider legit monsters. We definitely had some bucks taken this year that would have scored over 150, my, my estimates. Okay. Um, which, which again, is just an estimate. But we also have instituted a four-on-one side, which started in 2012 as an antler policy, and in 2017 instituted a 15-inch minimum inside, greatest inside antler spread oh, okay. to try, try to increase the average harvest age for the bucks and balance out the sex ratios. There is historical data going back to the 80s. I mean, they did count what deer were killed. Um, and then it was a free-for-all back then. Uh, you know, 600 deer killed, 100 button bucks killed in a year. I think even as late as like 2006, there was 90-something button bucks killed in deer season. Okay. So we've we've been on, me, me and my supervisor, my boss, we've been on the war path to try to decrease fawn harvest, increase doe harvest and increase the uh harvest age for bucks and part of that is is through um the antler policies okay so the man uh, a uh a four points on one side plus a 15 inch spread that's your current antler point restrictions correct correct okay so have you, I mean, since those have been implemented, has there been, I mean, you've only been there one year, but have, have they seen a jump in the quality of, of bucks? Um, from the hunters that are hunting season after season, um, the anecdotes I've heard that, yes, the bucks that are being harvested, I mean, there was always a few mature bucks that got harvested. I mean, pretty much anywhere you mean there will be a couple bucks that will reach that maturity four and a half five and a half um but and the average harvest age is increasing and um that's definitely been seen since that started happening uh we're only since we're also also in a couple 
only a couple years in to it. Um, I would say that those are kind of preliminary observations. It usually takes a couple of years to kind of see, like with any sort of like APR, um, it take a couple of years to see your results. I'm thinking that this year uh, and then kind of going forward, we'll really see a dramatic, maybe I'll see a more dramatic because I see every buck that comes out. Okay. Uh, What's been the biggest buck taken out the uh, this past season? Let's see. Um, the largest spread was, and, and we don't really have uh, like uh, antler measurements, like we're not we're not like scoring them. But the uh, the biggest, the longest spread was nineteen inches, or widest spread, excuse me. And the most points was uh, 14. Okay. Um, and that, that particular buck had palmated so much on his right side that I couldn't get my hand around it. And this was in between his G. I mean, he had a lot of junk going on on that side. So I would say somewhere in between his G2 and G3, he had like a branch growing yeah. on his head. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. Um, it, the, it, go ahead. So, and we also implemented for the first time last year doing the cementum annuli aging, um, where we harvest the incisors of uh, all adult deer um, starting at two and a half, because you can tell by the third cusp if a deer is a yearling or not. And the oldest buck we had harvested was nine and a half years old. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So just based off that information, it sounds like, the, you know, between the nine-year-old that, you know, obviously that could be an outlier, but the nine-year-old that got harvested and the, um, you know, the, the antler size of some of the deer that you've seen tells me that there's a lot of mature bucks on this, on this ground. There is. Okay. And um, the pressure is, not uniform whatsoever so i talked about how kind of the northern third is that glacial plain well it's flatter well that's where most of the open training ground is and when the military trains you know they need a mixture of open fields and and then forests and so most of the open ground is up where it's flatter and uh so you i mean you see a lot more deer there's a lot more you know the hunters see a lot more deer you can hunt field edges up there and so majority of the pressure uh, happens in that that upper third. I mean, and, and once you get down into the wooded section, the all hardwood section of the southern two thirds, I mean, there's hardly any pressure. Uh, it, it's the only time that though that southern two thirds sees any pressure is when we have these large firearm hunts and where we evenly disperse hunters throughout the area, okay. throughout the, or throughout the entire installation. Okay. So let me ask you this then. Um, do you, do you allow farmers on there to like the, um, farm the ground, uh, lease it from you guys, or is it just all natural? Uh, we used to, I think going back to like 2014 had some hay leases. Um, but it's been, it's been since then that there hasn't been any 
any agriculture going on. There was never any crop. It was just a, a hay lease. And I think that even got to be just a little too much, even on the farmers, because under certain stip, you know, they were haying our landing zones and our drop zones. And the installation is sort of picky about how long they want to let the grass get. And so I think it was also a little bit of a burden on the farmers is that they were forced to get in there and kind of cut hay before they really wanted to. Right. Okay. So for the most part, other than the training grounds uh, and the training facility, this seems like a, like big chunks of wildness. Like, do you guys go, I mean, are there roads going all over the place or are there hundreds of acres where no roads go through? Um, there are, yeah, there's definitely a couple chunks that are hundreds of acres that are kind of bordered by roads, but the road network is fairly extensive. I don't really think you can go a mile without hitting a road. What we do have that is the, I guess the counterpoint, but we do have our, what we call impact area. So that's where all the ranges fire into and have been firing into for decades and decades, 60, 70 years. Um, and so that's 5,600 acres where no one is allowed. Okay. Dude, but it also constantly, it constantly sees gunfire, artillery fire. And so the deer, I mean, the deer are in there, no doubt they're in there at their own risk that's crazy Uh, how often and (laughs) this is just for my knowledge but how often do they drop artillery on that area so um not too much i would say once a month once to twice a month um and then that's when you'll kind of see that's when like more like the southern part of the of the impact area gets gets munitions dropped on it all the small arm ranges are all kind of on the north they basically they line the entire northern border of the impact area and about a quarter way down each east and west side um do we have any ranges and then we also have a separate air guard range um that a10s use okay man that's crazy you uh, you think there's monsters or in there dodging bullets, dodging artillery? I I would have to say so. I mean, there's there's no question. Even on so that northern, the the whole northern boundary where uh, all the small arm ranges are, we bur- we, we burned it this winter. Yeah, you know, and the cow trails of deer that are going through right through the small arm ranges out into the out into the impact area is ridiculous i mean they got it beat down to mud yeah yeah wow that's awesome so aside from you know the you know that restoration project that you're doing are you guys doing any testing on the water there do you have ponds with fish in that area that you have to look after as well uh we do have a couple small ponds that uh, I, th- I have some bass in them. Um, nothing that we really manage. We do have a couple acre pond that is surrounded by uh, cabins. So you can rent cabins, like a little vacation like cabin. We have, there's five of them that you like people will vacation at. And there's a little pond up there. And then we have a 50 acre uh, 
man-made lake called Puff Lake that did get stocked with uh, largemouth and bluegill. Um, I personally have not done any work on that yet. I believe Command is uh, working through the processes of contracting out um, a group to come in and perform some aquatic invasive species work. Um, But I don't really handle anything fisheries related. And I don't even know when I would have the time to do that. Gotcha. So most of your work focuses on the the land and the deer correct um yeah so any other exciting projects that you're going to be working on uh either you know that you have worked on on this base or are going to work on in the future so um last fall i got Last fall, I got 25 acres of native warm season grasses and forbs planted. Uh, and actually, I got that mowed off just a couple weeks ago. So that's looking good. This year, I got let's see uh, 30 acres. This spring, I got 30 acres of native warm season grasses planted um, and managing that. On top of that, we have 50 50 acres that was planted in 2018. Um, so on 30 of those acres, I went through this year and did some spot treatment with some invasive species. We had bull thistle and Canada thistle. I mean, just taken over. So I went through and did that. Um, currently in the process of, there's like 180 acre, what we call the punch bowl. And it's an old impact area and is currently it's open space, but it's open space that isn't on a heavy mowing regime. So the environmental department, we've been able to kind of take that over and running um, native, trying to restore native prairie onto that. So I've got somewhere about 80 acres of that that I am mowing and spraying with herbicide this fall and hopefully burn in the spring and see what kind of happens uh, naturally on its own. I mean, cause I, I don't know if you're aware of what like native warm season grasses and wildflowers cost, but it's extremely expensive. Really? Yes. So I think the seed I planted this year was like $1,200 an acre. Wow. Man, that seems expensive. It, it, it is. It's, it, it, it's costly and well, it's, it's essentially gone away. I mean, native native prairie has disappeared extensively throughout the Midwest and where it was historically due to various land uses. And so there's so many nurseries that cultivate it and will sell it. Um, anecdotally, I used to, I spent six months in Missouri, northern Missouri, on a, on a research project for white-tailed deer. And um, the crew leader was like, yeah, the Nature Conservancy out here pays people $10 an hour to go around and collect wildflower seeds. Like it's, it, it's super, they're super rare and they make, well, not super rare, but they're, they're hard to come by and that makes them expensive. I got you. So we're going, I'm, I'm mowing and, and spraying with herbicide to see what will come back on its own. And that happened um, in 2018 in a, within this 180 acres that happened on an additional 40 acres in the first year 
came back all pretty much giant ragweed, which is native, which is good. Um, and then this year, the black-eyed Susans were crazy. And butterfly weed and even some partridge tr- partridge pea, uh, ironweed, milkweed, it all come up in year two after the ragweed had um, died off from last year. So the ragweed all came up and basically was a monoculture of ragweed. And then the second growing season after the herbicide treatment, a um, bunch of wildflowers and forbs came back up. So we're hoping for that same result in the 80 acres I'm working on right now, this fall. Okay, I'm just going to say this. <laughs> you have all this ground to play with, basically, right? And just from listening right. to you talk, it's do you love your job? Oh, it's great. It's almost it, like it, it's your own it, property. It really is. Um, and I'm not I mean, not out there planting food plots, but I'm out there putting native habitat on the landscape for the wildlife. Um, uh, you, were, you also asked about uh, future projects. So I'm in the process of basically finishing up a management plan that should hopefully kick off within the next year or two. It has to run through the NEPA process. and also has to go through the STEP process. Um, within the National Guard for funding, um, but it's going to be an upland habitat project um, where we are going to restore some native prairie, uh, but we're also going to create a feathered edge system around all that, around that prairie that we're creating. And some of it is remnant old farm field um, that we're going to throw a fire through and see what that does. Um, I'm using kind of old aerial images or most recent aerial images to kind of get some remnant open farm ground um, to then establish some native prairie, establish uh, feathered edge behind it in the tiers that are broken down that you can believe like NRCS and and Pheasants Forever will follow um, 25% canopy cover in the first tier, 50% canopy cover in the second tier, and 75% canopy cover in the third tier. Um, and that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be planting like all kinds of great plants, uh, button bush and dogwood and nine bark and nanny berries, just all these soft mass flowering shrubs that everything enjoys, you know, the deer, uh, we have quail, wild turkey, um, the songbirds, the small mammals. So I'm in the process of getting that push forward along with uh, and another aspect of that project, a young forest plot of about 100 acres. Okay. No, 80 acres. 80 acres. Um, kind of running grouse historically were on Camp Atterbury. We don't have them there anymore. I mean, I think the last grouse that was heard drumming was in 2008. Um, but young forest on Camp Atterbury is something that is lacking. So I've got 80 acres that I've got all divided up. Um, on GIS right now on, on the map for the proposal and basically run almost a, like a rotation of young forest to keep, you know, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, you know, kind of keep a rotation of young forest um, to offer a habitat for young forest species. Wow. So that is like, that's my baby that that's kind of the, this is the first management plan I've written in my career. Um, that I'm trying to get kicked up, kicked off the ground. Man, this is awesome. It, this is cool because like from your shoes, 
and we we all know that the military has some crazy budgets, right? Just like generally speaking, with you know between the the army, the air force, the national guard, you know the um, the other ones, whatever I'm forgetting, marines. But like the do you have do you guys have a a really good budget to play with? Yes. Yes. I don't know what that number is, um, but it is it, it's a nice budget. Definitely way more than like a wildlife management area can get, like a state wildlife man, at least in right. Indiana, way more than a right. Um, I can't speak to like the federal wildlife refuge, like the fish right. wildlife system refuges, right. but our 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 budget budget is quite comfortable. Good. Well, and you're doing good things with it. Do you guys ever work with any uh, other organizations like uh, QDMA or the, uh, let's say, like uh, Pheasants Forever or um, Whitetails Unlimited? No, um, we we don't. Um, That's something that I think we're trying to explore. It's uh, management is, I don't want to say like they're hesitant or not willing, but military like relationships partnerships i think there's just like a general uh i don't know they just want to be a little bit cautious about like openly endorsing something endorsing a group like that out of that that's a little bit above my pay grade yeah no i'm I'm hoping we do yeah just i was just out of curiosity um do you ever work with like the actual state wildlife biologist or um, you guys ever cross streams as far as resources or knowledge or second opinions and have someone from the state of Indiana come on and, and chat with you and give their expertise? Uh, not since I've been there. I do know the division of forestry has come in for some forest health stuff. Uh, we had, we had, we've had some oak die off. So I know they were in last fall to look at that um, from a forest health perspective, and they did run gypsy moth traps this year. We do border a fish and wildlife area, state fish and wildlife area, um, because the government DOD gave the state this ground um, to have a fish and wildlife area. So kind of like the 800 acres the one or one of those like 800 to a thousand acres that are separate on the other side of the road um, is where that upland project uh, that I'm management plan that I'm writing um, is completely surrounded uh, by DNR land. And the public is allowed to utilize that 800 to a thousand acres. Okay. Um, So we do operate along with like next, like we're side by side with DNR far as crossing streams i'm including dnr property in that management plan to hopefully kind of create some sort of uh bond or relationship for that particular project just because i mean it's our properties border each other and you know yeah habitat management more habitat management the better um but as of right now not not really so much okay man that sounds exciting. Like there's a little part of me that wants to do what you're doing. I want your job. So, I mean, it's really, for me, it's really awesome because I enjoy like obviously the knowledge of it all. 
um, and what you need to do to see habitat management and kind of the science and the, and the biology behind it. But then, man, I get to turn and burn and go get out on the equipment and go mow myself, go plant, spray, um, whatever. Like I get, I get to experience both sides of it. Yeah. Now, one thing I've also heard about the military is that there is a lot of paperwork and a lot of red tape that has to be filled out and you have to go through in order to get a project certified or accepted. Is that true as well? I mean, does sometimes that bog you down? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, everything, even even habitat management stuff must run through the NEPA process. Okay. Must go through the Clean Water Act, Compliance, Clean Air Act. Uh, Natural Preserve or Historic Preservation Act. Um, really, anything anything that happens on Camp Atterbury, and so I don't really have too much experience with like federal work in general. But um, I've done a like not a consultation, but I've done a memorandum for record that projects like just a building renovation. So I do a memorandum for record that this building renovation does not impact the endangered species on Camp Atterbury. Okay. So pretty much every, I, so what I would uh, surmise is that anything that happens on these federal lands must run through this NEPA process. All right. Are you, are you actually, can, I mean, you work, do you work for, or are you actually active military? I am a civilian employee. Okay, you're a civilian civilian employee, so you don't have to go run your two-mile run and do your push-ups and sit-ups and PT tests? None of that. Okay, all right. So are you contracted, or are you actually hired directly into it? I am a state of Indiana employee. Okay, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Cool, man. Well, it sounds like you have a very interesting job, and, uh, man, I, I loved the conversation today. Are you now since this is, it almost feels like this is a little bit of your property. Obviously you get, you get to share it with some other people, but are you excited to hunt this ground because of all the work that you're actually able to do to it? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's rewarding to be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Um, I mean, it's even rewarding to go on the spotlight surveys and go by the native the native prairie that I'm in the middle of restoring and at night see all the deer in there count two couple dozen deer in the areas I'm actively working on. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's super awesome to be able to then go out and utilize the land that I work on that my date. I mean, that my job is my job to work on. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, several other people get to uh, experience that and uh, enjoy that property as well. Yeah. Um, there in, yeah. So yeah, if you're, if you are, uh, active duty or you are in the guard, I mean, it is, it's a really awesome opportunity for, uh, service members to get out and hunt and have a big chunk of ground to go hunt on. Yeah. Sounds good, man. Not, there are like, I, there are other, like throughout the nation, um, military bases do well, not all of them, certain ones do. Um, but we're definitely not the anomaly for that. Right, right. And I, I've heard of uh, people, I think, I don't know if it's in Missouri or Kansas. I, I'm trying to think. There's another um, 
So I've heard somebody talk about an, another base similar to what you have that has a lot of, you know, deer on it and, you know, active military can hunt on it or, or military connector connections can hunt on it as well. So that's cool, man. Um, well, Patrick, I really appreciate your conversation today. Uh, thanks for filling us in and, uh, talking to us about what you do for a living and, uh, doing what you do, man. No problem, Dan. It was awesome talking to you. Um, I just, I, I love my job and I love talking about my job and being able to, you know, tell, you know, explain to everyone, uh, what good work is going on. Um, even in the military, cause like you said, it's not really, you don't really, uh, think of one with the other. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good luck this fall, man. You too, Dan. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Patrick for coming on the podcast today and chatting with us. Huge shout out. I say this all the time. I mean it all the time to you, the listener. Without you guys, this is not possible. So thank you. Huge shout out to the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles, Vortex Optics, The Average Conservationist, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, Wasp Broadheads, and Ozonics. Man, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Um, without them, this is not possible. So this equation, which is you plus them, equals the podcast in a way uh, uh, makes this possible and makes my wife uh, let me do this because I'm getting paid to. So uh, it's a, <laughs> it's kind of a win-win. Now, please go out and subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles on iTunes, wherever you download the podcast. Please follow on Instagram and please follow on Facebook. And that's it. I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you very much for tuning in. Have a great one and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>